Hello, my name is Paula Shadi Augusto. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Kansas. And my name is Pambe Bahia. I'm a neuroscientist, a communicator, and your host for Biology in Numbers, a podcast by the Society for Mathematical Biology. How are you today, Fuller? I am doing good. Thanks for asking. And thanks for hosting. Of course, yes. So you're not too tired given that you've just been traveling an awful lot? Um, a tiny little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Understandable. Um, so before we get, begin with the questions, we have a little challenge for all of our guests. Can you begin by describing your research in 60 seconds or less? So my research is at the interface between mathematics and biology. I am interested in developing mathematical models that understand the emerging and re-emerging infectious disease of public health importance and ways to mitigate the risk they pose to human health. So I address questions such as, what are the simple sustainable management strategies necessary to mitigate the risk from infectious diseases? And what are the effects of human behavior on disease spread and risk? Wonderful. All of our guests have, have been very good at this so far and you're no exception. So we'll get more into the research later, but uh, I know as well as being a researcher, you are a member of the Society for Mathematical Biology. Is that right? That's correct. Can you tell us why? What are the benefits for you? Um, so SMB, Society for Math Biology, is a natural place for me to belong to. My research focus aligns with the society's goal, which is to promote the development and dissemination of research and education at the interface between mathematics and biological sciences. And I have been a member since 2012 at the end of my postdoctoral fellowship at the National Institute for Mathematical and Biological Synthesis, NIMBIOS, it's a mouthful, yes. at the, at the um, University of Tennessee, Knoxville, Tennessee. Very cool. And so you, you do research and you teach? Correct. Okay. So this is a podcast about mathematical biology. And as you just alluded to, you are a good person to be on it. So while your research connects the two things, most people lean towards one field or the other. So are you team math or are you team bio? Well, now this is hard to answer. So this is like asking Star Wars or Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> so my work, like I said, is at the interface of math and biology. So they bring different things to the table, just like Star Wars and Star Trek. Biology brings the question, math brings the tools and, and the theory to address these problems. And I should add that biology and biological questions are the science of the 21st century, more like what physics was for the 20th century. So I am team in between. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Yes. And why should you have to choose? <laughs> exactly. So given that, I mean, at least to me, the subject of math biology I only learned about when I met my husband, David, because that's what he does. And that was only about 15 years ago. So how did you first hear about this particular field and what inspired you to start doing the research that you do? So my inspiration for working in this field is my postdoctoral uh, mentor, Professor Susan Lenhart at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. 
Um, so as a grad student, I was applying optimal control theory to study fluid dynamics, heat equation, electromagnetic equations, and the likes. And I changed when I came across a work on managing natural resources using optimal control theory, which, by the way, I also requested her to send me the paper because I was back in my country then. And the impressive thing was that she snail mailed the paper to me, which was really cool. So it has this yellow envelope with American stamp on it. It was really impressive. And I eventually got to meet her at a, a DIMAX workshop for grad students in South Africa. Now, DIMAX is the Center for Discrete Mathematics and Theoretical Computer Science. So what really launched me into the field was a bird flu outbreak we experienced in Nigeria back then where lots of birds were curled. So this was towards the end of my PhD. Now this event um, got me into developing infectious diseases and then using um, my knowledge of optimal control to try to find ways to mitigate the effects of this disease. So speaking of math models and infectious disease, let's get into some specifics. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us about the novel work you're doing, trying to understand emergence and re-emergence of infectious diseases and the importance of those things in human health? Um, certainly. So I'm currently working on two different yet important projects. So one, I'm trying to understand the role of human behavior on transmission of COVID-19. Um, human behavior such as um, quarantine violation, public sentiment, and also trying to understand people's mental health, uh, particularly during COVID-19. I'm also working on exploring the impact of um, prescribed fire on the spread of tick-borne disease uh, as part of a bigger um, group, group work or group project focused on uh, ticks in the Great Plain. Um, now, tick-borne diseases such as Lyme disease have been on, in, on the increase lately, and in fact, Tick-borne diseases is the most prevalent vector-borne disease in the U.S., which I found surprising because I, I do a lot of work on mosquitoes and we've heard of tons of stuff on mosquito like Zika, West Nile virus, dengue. And as we know, in recent times, malaria had been found in Florida and in Texas. And so it was surprising to me that tick-borne disease, uh, diseases are the most prevalent in the U.S. Now, both of these projects are funded by the National Science Foundation. So it might sound to anyone who's listening like those are not very connected things. So what is it that tick-borne diseases and COVID-19 have in common that allow you to apply your experience to both of them? Um, what they have in common is the fact that I can use um, my knowledge and background in math to be able to study and understand the way this disease transmits and also to find ways in which to mitigate the risk they pose to humans. Okay. And so how do you do this on a very practical level? So how is it that you get the data that you need to try and understand the transmission? For instance, with COVID-19, luckily for us, there were tons of data out there that agencies such as the CDC and as well as WHO, they've been collecting this data. And so we sort of like use this data to parameterize the models that we're building. Um, and we also have data from sources such as the John Hopkins 
portal that was collecting COVID-19 data, um, not just for COVID-19, but also for tick-borne diseases. And so we can get data from all these sources as well. Okay. So we've spoken to other people in the past about their research into COVID-19, and they said, you know, unlike many other things that they've worked on in their scientific field, like it was quite an overwhelming amount of information that they got from COVID-19 studies. So how did you navigate the amount of data that was coming out from all of these people all of a sudden, because there were lots of preprints and things. So as soon as people found something out, it was out there. Right. Well, so in our own case, yes, there were tons of data, like you rightly said, and tons of preprints, but many of those work were focused on trying to predict when the disease was going to either peak, the number of cases, when things are going to die out. We took a different route when we were doing our work on COVID-19. Like I said, we were focused on human behavior. And so most of this work were not on, on human behavior, but rather on the disease itself, like how many cases we're going to have. And so we focused on human behavior, trying to understand how human behavior will impact, you know, this number of cases and, and so forth. And so that way we'll be able to mitigate, you know, the, the risk posed by this different behavior. In our work on COVID-19, we were able to see that Quarantine violation, for instance, promoted um, these multiple waves of infection that we saw. And we saw that way back in 2020 when we were working on our model then. And so we saw this roller coaster of waves as a result of people changing their behavior because we built a model where we use imitation dynamics, where people were uh, mimicking each other's behavior. And the behavior, the way we had our model set up was influenced by um, the severity of the disease, which we measured in terms of uh, the number of infection that we had, number of people dying from the infection. And so as people saw this increase in the number of cases, they changed their behavior to adopt a more positive behavior and then the behavior of focus in our model then was self-isolation. So people adopt this self-isolation. However, the moment um, the number of cases went down, people went result back to their previous behavior and then the number of cases went up. And so we saw this roller coaster of, of behavior, roller coaster of waves as people were changing their behavior back and forth. And so that was the angle that we looked at things and we were looking at and trying to understand COVID-19 back in 2020, and we're still trying to understand the impact of COVID, especially during the lockdown period. Mm -hmm. So did your research then go back to directly inform public health initiatives? Personally, I didn't have a connection with the public health um, sector, but I have a member of my team who was in the public health sector. And so we gave the information to him to disseminate to, um, I'm going to use a, a math word, Epsilon neighborhood, uh, more like his, his own community. So that's the word I'm looking for. So the information was 
you know, disseminated to his community and as well as to our funder, NSF, because NSF had this session then where we were more like a conference then to, to report back what we found as far as COVID-19 was concerned. So one of the interesting things you mentioned is a lot of people have studied behaviors around transmission and so on, but you said you also looked at kind of mental health behaviors. Is mm-hmm. that right? Can you yeah. tell us a bit more about that? So our work, which was recently published, um, this was done with some of my students and the work was led by an undergrad in my lab, actually. Um, We wanted to understand people's mental health, how COVID affected people's mental health across the country. And we were using network analysis. So we got COVID-19 data across the entire country and, and then tried to create this network based on how similar the states were in terms of a couple of mental health related indicators like their feeling feelings of anxiety they're worried about finance so we use those as a proxy for um, how um, COVID-19 impacted people's mental health and so what we found was that um, so we had this specific point in time that we were looking at when we had Delta. So this was like the, the first big wave that we saw with COVID-19. So most of the Southern states were similar in, in how they were worried about finance, uh, were anxious towards, you know, the lockdown. And I forgot the last, the third thing, but there were, there were similarities between how the states were worried um, in terms of their mental health. And we also found that because we also looked at the political parties as well, the Democratic parties and then the Republican parties, we grouped the states according to political parties. And so we found that when we had the Delta wave, the Southern states as well as Republican states were mostly correlated, well, let me use the word correlated in terms of how they felt with their mental health. So COVID-19 had this, the most impact on them during that period in time. So I think a lot of people at this stage feel like we're out of the woods as far as COVID-19 is concerned. Mm-hmm. But it seems like your work will be relevant for you know future potential outbreaks and for other transmissible diseases. Is that right? Certainly. Uh, if people will heed to the warnings and the lessons that we, you know, that we learn from this particular outbreak. But sadly, I don't think that people would, um, given the fact that it's the same sort of behavior that we saw in the 1918 pandemic that we're also seeing in this 2019 pandemic as well. It's the same behavior, the same response. And I saw a paper on the 1918 um, flu pandemic. And they had like three waves when they were looking at this data from, I think, Wales or either Wales or just looking at UK as a whole. There were three waves which were moderated or which were as a result of human behavior. And so I, I don't know at what point humans will learn from history. I don't know. So. If we do learn from this pandemic, then, you know, we would avoid the things that we're seeing in this this particular pandemic and what we saw in the 1918 pandemic. 
does that not make you a little bit depressed about the, the kind of direction of your research or? Well, it, it does, but, you know, we have to, I'm just being realistic, you know, I'm just being, sure. being realistic about this. Yeah, for sure. So thank you for describing what you do from a research perspective, but I know you're also interested in doing a lot of other things. So uh, raising the profile of women in STEM and engaging students with the subject of math biology. So can you share more about the outreach work that you do? Oh, for sure. So since 2018, me and a couple of my friends and collaborators here in the US and in Africa, I've been running this training workshop for grad students in MadBio. And of course, we're making sure that women are well represented in these different programs that we're running. Um, we focus mostly on West African countries, and I'll tell you that later when I'm expanding on other things that I do. And so we visited countries like Benin, Senegal, and Nigeria. And this summer, in the next couple of weeks, we will be in Ghana as well. So I call this, this training workshop a mobile clinic. We have seed money that we've been using, which is really, really limited from SIMPA. So that's Center for Pure and Applied Math through the African Math Union. So um, I'm hoping that podcasts such as yours will be able to help attract funds for me to continue to run this, this workshop. And so we're soliciting for resources and funds wherever we can get them. In 2021, when we ran the workshop in Nigeria, we had over 450 applications. Wow. And we were only going to support 40 students. Um, so you can see how we need more funds to be able to, to do this workshop. And right now, we have 70 applications for the Senegal program. And because of funding, we are running a hybrid program where it's a two week long program. So we would have um, the first week will be a Zoom training and then the second week will be an in-person uh, meeting just because we don't have the money to have this face-to-face -face meeting. So what is it that they do during this workshop and how does it kind of apply to what they hope to do in the future? The grad students are mostly master's students and first year PhD students. And so we cover materials on ODE, uh, math, math modeling, some statistics, some network. This is something new that we're, we're bringing in into the program this year. Uh, within that two weeks, we also propose uh, research projects for them to work on, which we hope would lead to publications that would support the students in their grad school applications and in the case of PhD students maybe would also help them in their research work as well. And then at the end of the two weeks we have a presentation as well. So that's also part of the training that we're giving to the students how to you know put a research presentation together and give a presentation and write a report so these are all the things that we do during the training workshop yeah so aside from from this 
mobile clinic that thing that we do well i'm also part of masamu which means mathematics in sona and bantu language spoken in part of southern african countries mm-hmm. now this masamu is part of a larger group and they're supported by funds from nsf and the british council now this is a research group so it's not like the one that i do in west africa Uh, and this involves students from the US, UK and um mostly students from southern and eastern african countries and so this is why with the training program that i'm running with my friends uh, we're focused on west african countries mm-hmm. so aside from this i'm also um in september i will be serving as an instructor um in a workshop in addis ababa ethiopia on strengthening vector control decision making in in africa now this workshop will precede the annual conference on the pan african mosquito uh, control association now not all my outreach work is is in africa i am also a, a project leader in sl math our joints program so our joints here stands for african diaspora joint mathematics now this is a year long program that provides opportunities for us mathematicians especially those from african diaspora to form collaborations with distinguished african american research leaders to, um on topics um at the forefront of mathematics and statistics so these are the the many parts of me and the many things that I do as I said my oh many things <laughs> how do you find time for all of these i have learned to to manage my time yeah very good i'm very impressed <laughs> thank you and so finally before we go mm-hmm. we would like for our audience to learn a little bit about fola outside of the research environment so we have a couple of quick fire questions for you if you're mm-hmm. ready sure So I really enjoyed the bio that you shared when we asked you for a description of yourself where mm-hmm. you stated that you grow hot peppers and vegetables. So yes. What's your favorite thing to grow? Tomatoes and hot peppers. And I have four different hot peppers in my garden. I have habanero, ghost peppers, carolina reaper and trinidad Maruga scorpion. So I googled it and I learned that in 2012 it was the hottest hot chili pepper in the world. So does I that think. also mean you know what to do with them in terms of cooking? Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Yeah, I cook. So I do add hot peppers into my food. Um if it's just for me. Um if I'm having guests especially american guests no peppers <laughs> no peppers so because i want them to enjoy my food so no peppers for them yeah, yeah. that sounds like my mom <laughs> um, so as a scientist who has traveled extensively for your career mm-hmm. what does home mean to you my place of refuge mm-hmm. my safe place my place of rest so i i got in, into town yesterday and i was like uh home sweet home <laughs> i'm home yeah so it's my place of refuge yeah very good and finally mm-hmm. what would you do if you had an extra hour in every day i will spend that extra hour in my garden attending to my plants keeping critters away and of course making sure that my plants have no disease 
or diseases. My neighborhood is is filled with wild rabbits and squirrels and they are no good when it comes to garden so my garden is is highly fortified with ferns <laughs> <laughs> with ferns and nets on top of it to make sure that they are out yeah so i'll spend i'll spend that extra one hour in my garden i can see why you would need it so thank you so much for joining us today fola it's been really interesting learning about your work and your outreach and we hope you continue to have success. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. No, of course. And we'll make sure that we put all the links to your work and your outreach projects within the, the description of the show notes. All right. Thank you. You've been listening to Biology in Numbers, a podcast from the Society for Mathematical Biology and produced by me, Panve Bahia, at Art Science Media. You can learn more about SMB on their website, smb.org, and via social media on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Find links to all of these and some for today's guest in the episode show notes. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, and very likely your favorite podcast platform. So show us some love by making sure you review and subscribe. So we'll get more into the research later, but how about we start with, oh, goodness, there's a fly in my face. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'll start that again.